Tim, that was amazing. That was really, really cool. So praise the Lord. That was exciting. I love seeing our people develop their gifts and take a risk and to be creative because God is, is creative and he is certainly not stale in any way. So welcome to Awaken Church. It is great to have you guys here. Welcome to the beginning of summer, at least it is for our college students. They're kicking off summer, so they're going to be kind of uh, scrambling this next month. Uh, high school students are in their last week, or I'm sorry, last month of classes. They're going through exams. I know my girls are freaking out about that. And the rest of us, we have heat to look forward to. We have a lot, a lot of heat. Some vacation, but a lot of heat. Yay. So as a church, though, there are a number of things that we can be excited about looking forward to this summer. As we shared multiple times now, we have a Link Summer Project that's going to actually be here two Sundays from now, and it's a team sent uh, mostly from Gainesville, students and staff that will spend a month with us, helping us get some of the initiatives of this church off the ground, in particular, some of the initiatives we're dreaming about for Church Plant 2020. And so there's going to be a number of things that for us as a church, we have the opportunity to dive in and join in with them, including four Pray for Jackses in a row. That would be pretty exciting, but an opportunity to get into four different pockets of the city of Jacksonville. We're going to be running neighborhood VBSs, which is going to be really amazing as well. And as Katie will announce later, we're going to be doing some things in the church and taking a deeper dive into understanding and knowing God as well. So... With all that, it, and Sunday mornings, we decided to take some shots as well. So Sunday mornings, we're going to go through two series in particular. The first one's going to be the, called uh, What the Bible Doesn't Say. And it's been going to be going through a series on what our culture says the Bible says, but the Bible doesn't really say. Ideas like God helps those who help themselves. The devil made me do it. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. And uh, God won't give you more than you can handle to thine own self be true. There are a number of them. And the reason why we're tackling this series is not simply to be cute, but to come back to this idea that we were at in Creed as well, is that oftentimes we live in a culture that's trying to shape what Christian faith is supposed to look like. And that's not where our faith comes from. And so during this Creed series, we're focusing on doctrinal deviations and where we might be going off and what is that standard of truth that we're going to hold to and cling to. And over the course of this series, we're going to just contra or, uh, contrast the ideas culture has about God and faith and what the Bible really says. So that's going to be exciting. We're also going to have a prayer service, and we're going to do something special. We're actually going to do what's called a uh, join-in, what's called a Pray Together Sunday, hosted by the National Association of Evangelicals. So we're going to be partnering with thousands of churches worldwide, and we just happen to be praying on the same day, praying for the same thing, and just believing that in unity there is power in prayer. And then we're going to close out our summer with a series going through one of the minor prophets, the book of Habakkuk. So that's kind of what our summer will be looking like on Sunday mornings here at Awaken. So there's really some neat stuff that we're going to be tackling, but we're not there yet. And right now we're closing out a series that we've been going through for the past four or five weeks that we've entitled Underground Church. And the goal of this series has been, uh, with a church plant in mind, taking a deeper dive into a church planted by the Apostle Paul, whose story is found in Acts chapter 16. And it's the story of the church at Philippi. 
And over the course of these past few weeks, what we've done is we've gone through the story of the city, the story of the church, the, uh, the, the book of Philippians itself. And everything that we have done so far in going through the story of the book at, or I'm sorry, the church at Philippi has come from the scriptures or context cues and, and uh, uh, historical facts that are at during those biblical times. But today we're going to close out the series by taking a look at what happens to the church at Philippi post book of Acts. So just as a reminder, uh, the church at Philippi is a bit of a smaller church, but a faithful one. It's located in a military city located close to a port. So in many ways, the city dynamics doesn't look all that different from the city of Jacksonville. Uh, Paul was there to establish the church, and it started with a very eclectic group of leaders, uh, women and men, uh, wealthy and working class, all coming together side by side. People who in normal life wouldn't necessarily find reason to interact, but in the church, they found unity in Christ. That's where we have come, and what Paul has written to the church of Philippi has been to commend them for their faithfulness, to warn them against false teachings, and then to challenge them to rejoice always. And that's kind of where we wrapped up last week. And that's the point that we've come to. But what happens to the church afterwards? What happens to the church after Paul dies? What is the legacy and how is this church remembered? Did it even survive? That's what we're going to cover today, the legacy at the Church of Philippi. And to do this right, I'm going to have to channel my inner Andrew Roberts, tall, smart, a little whiter than me, Andrew Roberts. And we're going to take a dive into some ancient history. And before we dive into ancient history, in order to better understand where the church at Philippi came from, we're going to tell another story first. The story of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a man. He was born in 69 AD, and he was a Christian from a child, uh, from a pretty young age. And he grew up in the faith during a really interesting time in history, a time when the original disciples have already established the church, but then being persecuted, many of them are being martyred for their faith. And there's a baton being handed off. But for the most part, the people of that time didn't anticipate the need for a baton to be handed off. Because they thought the return of Jesus was going to be imminent. And it wasn't until these disciples were getting martyred and they weren't being taken off to heaven that they realized that if the Lord's return is delayed, how is the church going to survive? And so Polycarp is one of these young leaders that's being raised up. He was discipled by the Apostle John. You know the guy. He wrote the book, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation, that one. He disciples Polycarp, and John is also one of those among the original disciples who appoints Polycarp to be the bishop of an area called Smyrna. So Polycarp wasn't an OG, but he was definitely a G. So that's how you can understand who Polycarp is. And he had the unique role as he rises into this position of being bishop over Smyrna that he has responsibility of, of leading the church through a transition where the original disciples, the original apostles have all now died. The first generation, the first hand witnesses have died. 
And Polycarp is among that core group of key leaders that's tasked with taking the church to where it needs to be. And so if you understand that, then you understand the challenges that he was facing. Because there is no cohesive scriptures at this time. There are no Bibles. There are just letters. There's a lot of false doctrines and people preaching false doctrines. And he's having to take a stand on truth. Communication is difficult because churches don't have the internet, the interweb, or anything. They don't even have phones, right? Communication is difficult. It's in this context that Polycarp rises to the challenge. And the reason why Polycarp's story is relevant is because he wrote a letter. And it's probably not the only letter that he ever wrote to a church, but it's the only one that survived. And it's called Polycarp's Letter to the Philippians. And in this church, what we find and what we discover about the Church of Philippi as drawn out through this letter that he wrote, uh, which was written somewhere between 110 and 140 AD, so uh, towards the beginning of the second century, Polycarp starts his introduction uh, with these words, commending the Church at Philippi. He says, the strong root of your faith spoken of in days long past, have lasted until now and borne fruit to our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered even to the point of death for our sins, but whom God raised from the dead, releasing the grip of Hades. He is the one that though you do not see, you believe in, and believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Into this joy many long to enter, knowing that by grace you were saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. It's really amazing when you read this letter Polycarp writes to the church at Philippi, and you see how many different gospels and letters that we have in the scriptures today bleed into his writings, which means he's really familiar with a lot of the letters that are circulating among the churches. But the point that I want you to capture from this introduction to the letter is that the church has been faithful. That's the trait that Paul commends him for, and we find that many years later, it is still true. 50, 60, 70 years later, it is still true. They've learned the lessons that Paul taught them in his previous letter. They are rejoicing with joy unspeakable, and they're doing that despite controversy and despite there being false teachers. They're doing that despite the death of many of their mentors and their leaders. And they're doing this in the midst of the persecution happening in the, across the Roman Empire during this time. So the church has been faithful. The church has been rejoicing. The church has been steadfast in their faith, putting their hope in Christ and not in their own works. But it hasn't always been easy. Later on in the letter, he writes, I exhort you all. To yield obedience to the word of righteousness and to exercise all patience, such as you have not seen before your eyes, not only in the case of blessed Ignatius and Zosimus, Rufus, and also among yourselves, but also in Paul himself and the rest of the apostles. So he is naming some of the leaders that are either from the church of Philippi or whom they're very familiar with, and he's telling them that, hey, I know these guys have been killed for their faith. They've been they've passed on. But we are assured that these have not all run in vain. 
but in faith and righteousness. And they are now in their due place in the presence of the Lord with whom they also suffered. For they did not love this present world, but him who died for us and for our sakes and was raised again by God from the dead. Therefore, stand fast in these things and follow the example of the Lord. He's saying these are men who have endured the suffering of Jesus. That's why they know him so well. It's because they were willing to endure what Christ endured too. And they remained faithful and steadfast until the end. And brothers and sisters, women and men, follow in their example. Under the person, so what has been happening, for those of you not familiar with what is going on during this time in the Roman Empire, a number of the Roman emperors have risen up. And in Rome, there's no crime in worshiping gods. Their crime is to say that any of the gods that we worship are invalid, right? To invalidate any faith. So the Roman Empire is this, is this empire that says, we want to give people freedom to worship, and we're not going to take a stand on any one or the other, or to say that one is better or superior than the other. And so Christianity's great crime has been they've come into the table and they said, no, there is only one God. And there is only one Savior, Jesus Christ. There is this exclusivity to faith that the Roman empires wanted to squash off and kill. And so various Roman empires had various means of doing so, but some of them were brutal. What they would do is they'd pull out Christians and demand that they either recant and offer a sacrifice to the emperor, who of course is the greatest of their gods, or die. Or even worse, recant, offer a sacrifice, or we'll kill off everyone you love until you do. This is the type of environment that these Christians were bearing under. And so to remain steadfast to the end is not the same as what it means for us today. For them, it's literally a life or death issue. And so Paul acknowledges their pain. Paul acknowledges their loss, but he encourages them, stay faithful, remain steadfast, endure suffering, endure it for doing what is right, what is godly, and what is honorable. And then before closing out the letter, Polycarp takes a moment. And again, these are things revealing the state of the church, right? So Polycarp takes a moment to respond to a letter they had, the church had written to him earlier regarding a concern they had. And the concern they had is that one of their leaders, one of their pastors, had fallen to sin. And so Polycarp writes, I am greatly grieved for Valens, who was once an elder among you, because he understands so little the place that was given to him in the church. I exhort you, therefore, that you abstain from covet, covetousness, covetousness, covetous, covetousness, you know, coveting, right? And that you be chaste and truthful, abstain from any form of evil. For if a man cannot govern himself in such matters, how shall he require them of others? If a man does not keep himself from coveting, he shall be defiled by idolatry and will be judged as one of the heathen. Who of us are ignorant of the judgment of the Lord? Don't we know that the saints shall judge the world as Paul teaches? So here in this passage, we get a bit of an idea of why Valence had fallen. He coveted. He wanted what he did not have. He desired what maybe he shouldn't have. And he claimed it for himself unrightly. And as a result, 
And we don't know what that means, right? There's some clues here when it says that covetous or abstaining from coveting will guard you in being chaste and faithful and truthful. So he lied, and there might have been some immorality issues as well. So he compromised himself morally, showed a lack of self-control, and as a result, the church exercised judgment against him. And basically, judgment in this time was very often like, you are one of our leaders, you are judged more harshly, and you've been set aside and cast out of the church. And Polycarp responds by saying further that by God's grace, we are the church and not the world. And so even though we are mandated to judge righteously, we're also to judge mercifully. The two go together. And so he writes, I am deeply grieved, therefore, brothers, for Valence and his wife, to whom may the Lord grant true repentance. So be moderate in regard to this matter, and do not count such as enemies, but call them back as suffering and straying members, so you may save your whole body. For by acting this way, you shall edify yourselves. I love Polycarp's response to this. He's like, guys, be moderate. Be temperate, be reasonable in this. Yes, judge rightly, but don't treat them as your enemy. That's not who they are. They're fallen brothers and they're a fallen brother and sister in Christ. And so see them as a straying sheep and now as a suffering one. And if possible, bring them back into the fold. And if you do this, if you respond in this way, you not only bring glory to Christ, but even the church. So there's a lot more to this letter, but the ideas from it is what I want you to catch is in these, uh, in these decades, after Paul has died, the church has not only survived, but endured, right? They persevered through difficult trials, and they have remained faithful. They've lost leaders, they've lost loved ones, but they remain faithful. They remain faithful focused on Jesus. Soon after this letter is written, Polycarp himself is martyred. He's burned at the stake. According to legend, even though he was burned at the stake, he didn't die, so they ended up having to take a spear and pierce him through the heart, and his blood quenched the flames. That's, by, that's written by someone who recorded that incident. So the church continues forward. Not much is known about the church during the third century, which is the 200s, but there's a good bit of information about them during the 4th century, which is the, the 300s, right? There are a number of archaeological clues. So I'm going to share them, and I know this may be trivial, and for some of you it's like, really, do we need to know this? Well, just kind of follow me for a little bit. They know the church has grown significantly in the 200 years since this letter has been written. Part of the reason why they know is because there are a number of, of gravestones that they found that along with whoever is being named on them, there's also an inscription of the church at Philippi. And so because of that, they know that the church has grown because there's a lot of tombstones with that reference made. That's one. Additionally, there was a, a church building built. It's called uh, the Basilica of Paul. So the first church that was built in the city of Philippi, they named after the founder, the church planter, or the, church, or the pastor who planted that church there. And they, so in order to build it, they built it at the outskirts of the city, and there were a number of people who had gathered there to meet. And there was an inscription on the floor in the center room of this basilica that names uh, Porphyrius as the bishop of the city. 
So again, not only has the church grown and become more prominent, but there's even a bishop who oversees the city. There's also another inscription alongside it for those who want to read uh, ancient Greek. Actually, yeah, that's it. That's the actual inscription uh, that named Porphyrius as the bishop of the city. There's another one alongside it that specifically declares that as a church, we have not fallen with the heretics. In other words, what they're declaring is that it's so important for them to be doctrinally pure, to be right in their beliefs, that they inscribe it into the, into the very, uh, very basilica itself, that we will not compromise our faith. We will not compromise what we believe. Over the next two centuries, so for the next 200 years after the fourth century, the basilica will be torn down, rebuilt, and transformed into what was called the octagon, which is a much larger structure designed to ha- allow people to worship. And by the 300s, the estimated size of the church was somewhere around 950 to 1,000. So it's growing. It's about 10% of the population of Philippi. And one of the interesting things, again, if you're not a student of history, what has happened during this time, during the early 300s, is Constantine has become emperor. And with Emperor Constantine, what he has declared is for the first time ever, for the first time in history, across the Roman Empire, you are free to worship as a Christian. And that unlocked the gates. And so churches were being built, people were getting saved all across the empire. So for the next 200 years after that, not only has the basilica become the octagon, but then four other churches are built in this city. No longer small and discouraged, but growing and faithful. They will remain faithful until the end. That's an amazing story, is it not? That's the church at Philippi, a little history dive into it. A church that was almost this inadvertent church. Because if you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul never intended to go into Europe. Paul never intended to go into Greece to start this church. He wanted to go into Asia, and God told him, God's spirit said, no. Then he said, well, let's go into Bithynia, and the spirit of God said, no. And then Paul's like, I have no idea where I'm going, God. And God showed up in a vision and told him with a man from Macedonia and said, come to us. And so Paul goes to Europe. He establishes a church there. And the first church that's established in Europe is this church at Philippi. So it's almost an incidental church, a church that never intended, was never intended by Paul to be planted, but God intended all along. Rich and working class, side by side. That was how the church was established. Women and men coming together, side by side, to lead and worship together. That's what was indicative of this body of believers, with Jesus serving as the great unifier. So what does this have to do with us? That's where we had to pivot, right? After five weeks of spending our time going into the church at Philippi and gleaning different lessons, what does this legacy have to do with us? And so I just want to share two points I want us to draw out from this story, from the example of this church. Two points I want to make. The first one is this, church life is messy. Church life is messy. We could just as easily say life is messy because it really is, but there's something about the idea that church life is messy that can be a bit disconcerting because we understand that our lives will be a bit messy and we just have to deal with it. But none of us come to church to have to deal with drama. 
We don't come to church to deal with conflict. We don't come to church to have to deal with difficulty and trials. And some of us don't even want to come to church to hear about other people's problems because we just have enough of our own and we don't want to bear yours too. But that's not what the body of believers is, right? We tend to want our church to be a safe place. We want our church to be a comfortable place. We uh, want our church to be a place kind of like, like Cheers. Do you guys, where everybody knows your name. Is that too old for you guys? So the geezers can just smile and say, I know. Or Friends, is that better? So no one told you it was going to be this way. That's right. right. So Friends, maybe that's better, right? That this idea with Friends is, is this is what church is supposed to be like. It's this kind of community where we come together. There's a familiarity that's involved, and we enjoy being one, with one another, even though we're going through tough things in our lives, you know? The church is here to help you get past second gear when it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or year, right? I'll be there for you. That's the idea of the church. And somehow what I love about these shows, not that I'm advocating watching Friends or Cheers, but what I love about these shows is they're talking about people who are going through real challenges and real issues and real messiness, but they found a way to make that messiness fun. To be able to laugh together, to be able to cry together, to be silly together, to deal with pain and loss together, that that's the idea. And this, as much as anything, communicates what the essence of the church is supposed to be all about. The church isn't supposed to be some clean place where there's no problems and everybody can come in and be at our best selves. It's where we understand that we bring the messiness of our lives and we come together and we laugh about it, we cry about it, we share our burdens with one another. And that's what makes this real and genuine. And that's one of the things that as you go through the story of Philippi, what we have to realize was true for them in the first century, was true for them in the second century, was true for them in the third, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth, and it's true for us today. And it will always be this way. One of the uh, verses that I used to share with our college ministry but way back in the day when we were a campus church, uh, shared quite often with our saints, it's a book, it's a um, a verse from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. And in that passage, what it basically says is that where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But where there are oxen, there is strength for the harvest. And so I love that passage because what is being communicated is if you want a nice, clean, pretty church, that's fine, but be prepared to be in that church by yourself. But if you want strength that comes from community, that comes from people working alongside one another for a cause that's worthy, then be prepared for a lot of poop because that's what's going to be a part of it as well. Church is messy. Church life is messy. And let me define what messy means in case I don't want you to misunderstand what messiness is, right? Messiness is what happens when life doesn't go the way we expect it to go. Messiness happens because we live in a sin-scarred world where people sin, where people are affected by other people's sin, where people stumble and fall, where people come and people go, where people laugh sometimes at inappropriate places and times, and where we cry also sometimes at inappropriate places or times. But that's kind of what messiness looks like. Nothing worth having is going to be easily won. The Church of Philippi illustrated this. Paul wrote about it in, in the book of Philippians when he writes about Judea and Syntyche and says, Ladies, 
get it together. Get past your disagreement and strive for unity. You read in the book of Philippians when Paul is talking about Epaphroditus. And he says, thank you for the gift sent to me. Why was he sent? Because Paul, in trying to accomplish the will of God, was imprisoned and suffering there. And so he had Epaphroditus was sent to him to care for his needs. How later on, leaders of the church were killed because they remained steadfast to the faith. Where one of their leaders, one of their pastors and elders fell to sin. Right? Church was messy all along the way. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about this idea of, of who Jesus is. And I think the reason why I want this idea to sink into us is that church is, is designed to be a bit messy. Church life is designed to be messy. It's because I don't want us to have wrong expectations about what church life is. I don't want us to all of a sudden find that carrying the burdens of my brothers and sisters is supposed to be this odd thing. It's kind of what comes with the package. It's kind of what makes relationships real. We have to be able to be vulnerable with one another. And I think also if we understand that the reason, one of the reasons why the church is so messy is because it's built upon the messiest story of all, is it not? The gospel story. In Philippians 2, Paul shares what that looks like when he says, though he was God, talking about Jesus, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a messy story. It's a completely unexpected story, one that doesn't fit our idea of what Messiah is supposed to look like. And yet, it's true. And so many contradictory ideas, is it not? That suffering is a pathway to glory. That humility is the greatest trait. And that love leads to sacrifice. These are all ideas that just, for us, maybe a bit more commonplace because we've grown up in the church, but for the world, being introduced into a world that did not embrace those ideas. Church life is messy, and God calls us to be a part of this messy community. As we shared in Proverbs 14, oftentimes what we see is messy, God sees as strength being forged. And when we look and see that relationships are hard, God sees his family being assembled. With that in mind leads us to our second point, suffer for the right things. Suffer for the right things. If we understand and accept that truth, that not only is life messy, but church life is messy, and that messiness means trial, temptation, pain, failure, and even death, suffering. That will be true for every life, and it will be true for church life as well. Most Americans don't want to accept that reality. Most Americans want to be able to think or imagine that if I have enough control over my life, I can avoid hard things. I can avoid suffering. I can avoid trials and challenge and temptation. You can't. So if we accept that this is a part of life and a part of church life, then the next response, the next reasonable thought should be, well, if we are going to suffer in some way, shape, or form nonetheless, then let us choose, if we are to suffer as a consequence, choose to suffer for right things and not wrong ones. That's the choice we have. Most Americans today want to live a life or are trying to live a life 
that avoid pain. There are too many Christians today and too many churches today who live their lives in such a way as to minimize suffering, live to avoid pain. It shows up in how we try and overprotect our kids. It shows up when we overmedicate or even sometimes undervaccinate. We have a $3.65 trillion, trillion dollar healthcare system specifically designed to help us get through pain, avoid pain, and minimize suffering. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to rip healthcare or, or uh, you know, overparenting a little bit, that's okay, or vaccination or anything like that at all. I'm simply saying, right, I'm not even trying to say medication is wrong or minimizing pain is wrong. I'm simply saying that the avoidance of pain can't be the driving force of our lives because it's just not going to work. Pain isn't really the problem. Okay, it's a bit of the problem, right? But we can endure pain if we know that the reason for our enduring it is right and good. We know what that's like, most of us in this room. Because most of us in this room have gone through a time where we've endured pain willingly to protect someone else from having to face pain. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes it's physical. A lot of times it's emotional. I will suffer so you don't have to. Does that make sense? That's what I'm talking about here. If you're going to suffer, choose to suffer for right things. We can suffer for being selfish and stupid, or we can suffer in obedience to Christ. And that's what Paul is writing about here in Philippians 3 when he says, For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. So he says, we come into relationship with God through faith. And then Paul says, this is my desire, to experience the power that Jesus did. How will I do that? I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. The church at Philippi chose to endure pain, to endure a lot of suffering, but in choosing to suffer for the right things, they built a foundation of faith that lasted for generations, lasted for more than generations, lasted for centuries. And brothers and sisters, that's what we want to. That's what not only do I want for you, that's what we want to build as a church. The type of church that says we will choose to endure suffering for the right things in order to build a foundation that will impact not only our lives, but the lives of those who, who are to come. And that's why, as a church, we've been having a number of different conversations about church planting and have launched this initiative called Church Plant 2020. Because if I'm going to be perfectly honest, there's a part of me that says, why are we doing this? This is crazy. Why have we as pastors chosen to set this vision up and, and chosen to follow the Lord in this? And, and there's going to be difficulty involved, and we know it. There already has been. There's going to be sacrifices that are going to have to be made. There are relationships that are going to be separated because we're not all going to be worshiping together in the same way that we have been. But is this right? If we're going to see the kingdom of God advance in our generation, if we're going to be committed to doing our part, are we willing to go there? I need to wrap up. I'm running a bit long. So I want to share with you one final story before I do. So not an ancient history story. So no more Andrew Roberts, tall, handsome, smart, white, Chinese guys back. I want to tell you a story of uh, two high school seniors named Tyler Smith 
and Heather Brown. I don't know if you've been reading the news. You, their names might sound familiar if you have been. I came across their story in Fox News and realized that they go to high school, they attend high school at Christ Church Academy, which is right here in Jacksonville, located off of Old St. Augustine Road, so not too far away. Tyler and Heather, they've been friends since fourth grade, and they decided last month, I think it was on April 18th, they decided to celebrate Senior Skip Day by going out to Volano Beach and going for a swim. And so both of them were capable swimmers, but the waves were a bit rough that day, and they ended up swimming a bit farther from shore than they should have, and the undertow started pulling them out. And even though they tried to swim back into shore, the undertow was stronger than they were. And so they ended up being out in the ocean for almost two hours. And by the end of those two hours, they ended up being two miles offshore. They were getting tired. Heather started getting cramps. And Tyler was doing everything he could to keep them afloat. And it's at this point in time that they decided to launch up a desperate prayer, right? Their Hail Mary. Not that they necessarily hadn't been praying, but they're now realizing there's nothing we can do. And so they really started to pray for God to save them. And Tyler in particular remembered praying, saying these words, if you really do have a plan for us, like, come on, just bring something. That's a desperate prayer, right? If you really have something for us, come on, just bring something. As soon as he spoke those words, a miracle happened. A boat showed up. It was uh, a crew and captain uh, that were actually heading from Delray Beach on their way up to New Jersey. And they decided, that even after looking at the rough waves, they decided they wanted a bit of adventure. So they got their boat and started heading up the coast. And over the roar of the wind, over the roar of the waves, and over the roar of the engines, they somehow heard these two high school students yelling and screaming. And so they, were a, they managed to pull their boat right next to this young man and woman, and they brought them into the boat and rescued them from the waves. When they're on their boat, Tyler and Heather, what was really fascinating is they could not stop talking about how God had saved them. Out in the ocean, struggling for two hours against the waves, being drawn out two miles offshore, wondering if they're going to die. And then distinctly, what stood out in Tyler's mind is that during this whole time, we finally decided we have to pray. And so finally crying out in prayer. And as soon as they finished that prayer, a boat came by to rescue them. God brought them a boat. And you know what was really the funniest part about this whole thing? Do you know what the name of the boat was? name of the boat was the Amen. <laughs> Seriously? I love stories like these because they remind me that our God is at work, that he does hear our prayers, and he's got a great sense of humor as well. Isn't that amazing? God loves us. God is faithful. We serve a risen king who is involved in our lives and involved in the life of the church even today. It's going to look messy at times, but the reason why it looks messy is because our perspective is so limited. It's not messy to God. Let's endure. Let's persevere. If we suffer, we will. Let's do it for what is right and what, good, what is good and what honors the Lord. Amen?